0: He definitely said what he thought. President Trump giving his State of the Union address last night. Lots of analysis, reviews of his achievements and of those behind and in front of the president last night with us to talk a little bit about the speech, uh, the highlights, the lowlights. Kevin Whitelaw, U.S. Government Deputy Managing Editor at Bloomberg News, on the phone from our Washington, D.C. Bureau, also in our 991 studio in the nation's capital, Katya Dimitriou. She is U.S. economy reporter at Bloomberg News. So, Kevin, let's kick it off with... with... With you, Um, the president said uh, just moments ago that his speech was pretty well received. What are you hearing from inside and outside the Beltway?
2: Well, you know, I think um, like with most of these speeches, it depends what you wanted to hear going into it. So um, <laughs> you know, Republicans came out with um, uh, the predictable um, set of things. In fact, we even heard a few use some words that had been suggested by the White House uh, ahead of time for how they should describe the, uh, the the speech afterwards. Words like powerful and visionary and strong. Um the uh, uh, Democrats obviously did not hear anything uh, resembling an olive branch. Um, uh, I think the most interesting moment from a human level was, was when he acknowledged the record number of women in Congress that prompted what seemed like one of the few sort of genuine, unscripted moments, um, which otherwise followed the usual script of, of Republicans standing up and applauding and Democrats um, uh, smirking or, um, uh, or, or sitting, uh, sitting quietly in their seats.
1: So, Katja, come on in here, because, you know, what, one of the interesting elements was there was a lot of talk about the economy, a lot of numbers thrown out. I was watching the the Top Live blog, uh, you know, sort of fact check uh, in real time. What did you take away from an economic perspective, both from the message and the reality and where we go from here on both sides of the aisle?
3: Well, you know, it's first of all. I mean, we should just say that every president is going to try to take credit for a booming economy, right. and and it's the reality that the economy is in a pretty good spot right now. Uh, the few things that kind of uh, had us scratching our heads and scrambling for the answer was when he uh, brought up certain data points that we just uh, didn't exist or didn't seem to exist in the data when we looked at it, the official data that we look at for the economy. Um, and I'm glad that Kevin brought up uh, women actually. So he he did mention that there's more people in the workforce than at any point in our history. Uh, However, that's just a function of population growth. If you're going to have more people in the population, you're going to have more people working. And he said specifically about women that there are more women in the workforce, which, again, is true because there are more women in general, uh, numbers-wise. However, uh, the participation rate, in other words, how many women um, are actually uh, in the labor force working compared to not working, that is actually still below previous uh, economic cycles so overall painting a picture of a solid economy which is the reality a lot of data points just didn't match up
0: well and to be fair just going about you know more people are working now than any time in our history um as you said a function of population growth, the number has grown as you point out in your story under every president since the 1950s so to be fair i'd have to do a kind of a search of state of the union addresses over the last few decades because i I, my guess is you know presidents on both sides of the aisle have, have kind of made that statement um Kevin Whitelaw, uh, you know, where do we go from here? Because I think this State of the Union is often seen by a sitting president who's getting ready and facing a re-election, that this is kind of the beginning of his campaign election cycle.
2: Sure. It's the beginning of his campaign election cycle, but it comes with a much more pressing deadline of February 15th mm-hmm. when fun- government funding runs out and, and, and uh, the nation runs the risk of a second government shutdown. I think one of the interesting messaging moments coming out of the speech was Um, Both sides essentially saying, well, the speech didn't really change anything, and and Democrats trying to say that the strident language um, related to immigration on the border did not actually – uh, was not going to get in the way of their efforts to try to re- strike a deal with Republicans on the border. Um, and those, ne- those negotiations are ongoing. But they really only have a few more days to come up with even the framework of a deal to be able to have the time to push it through uh, without running the risk of, of, of yet another shutdown.
0: Hey, Katya, I want to go back to you, because I will say, reading in this morning, I was reading all about our coverage, our great coverage of the State of the Union last night. But one thing that struck me in your story is about manufacturing jobs. And I'm thinking there's a great story in the magazine this week That looks specifically at Foxconn and great fanfare Mm -hmm. in terms of – It's the cover story. It's the cover story, you know, creating manufacturing jobs in the U.S. You've got to read it because it doesn't exactly play out like I think everybody anticipated. In terms of manufacturing jobs and job creation, the
3: president said a lot of things. Was he right? That's a great example. So uh, last year, we saw a lot of that fiscal stimulus, right? We had a lot of those tax Mm -hmm. cuts for corporations. We had some workers getting more take-home pay. And a part of that was uh, tax cuts for companies and and more uh, ambitious packages for companies if they could bring uh, workers to a certain area, like Foxconn, for example. Um, So we did see uh, a great boom in manufacturing. He's not wrong when he says that, when he tweets it and when he brings it up. At every chance, um, there has been a gain of about 480,000 jobs uh, since he was elected. Um, he cited 600,000. We don't know where that came from, but the fact remains that there are there was a boom in the sector. However looking forward, as the effects of that tax cut wear off and companies start thinking, OK, we have to plan for one, two, five years from now uh, with inflation remaining you know, this way, with our investments remaining this way, how are we going to do that? And the outlook is that they aren't going to be investing as much. They aren't going to be hiring as much and they aren't going to be you know, buying as many goods and products and expanding as much as they have been in the past.
0: We just really want to know, though, I got to say, that Nancy Pelosi hand clap Kevin Whitelaw, what was that?
2: Um, She said it was not intended to be anything other than just sort of a a hand clap directed at somebody. But, um, you know, I think uh, a lot of her reactions throughout the speech were getting a fair amount of attention. And and some of it was her her uh, um, trying to. Obviously, not overreact to some of the things she was hearing, um, but also to sort of keep some of her her, her own caucus in yeah, line. Right. I think, um, you know, yeah. Democrats really wanted to make sure that they didn't uh, create any headlines out of their reactions to, to Trump's speech. It I will- think
1: we're all looking forward to the SNL <laughs> yes. cold open uh, this weekend to see how they uh, oh play goodness. all that. Uh, Kevin Whitelaw, U.S. government deputy managing editor Katya Dmitrieva, U.S. economy reporter, both joining us from the nation's capital. Thank you both.
0: we are going to talk about power, specifically really energy. Uh, the Hennessey BP Energy Fund, as I mentioned earlier, and the BP Midstream Fund, beating most of their peers over the past five years. Let's get into the strategy of these funds. Toby Lofton is Portfolio Manager of the two funds, Managing Principal at BP Capital Fund Advisors, based in Texas in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. And you remind us, reminded us rather, that BP has to do with Boone Pickens, a legendary, really, when it comes to uh, the energy industry and investing in the energy space and he still comes into the office
4: he does he sure wow. does.
0: does he still have investment ideas and
4: <laughs> he loves it he's a competitor yeah. at heart yeah yeah he he loves it
0: yeah
1: so you've been uh there in Dallas you were telling us uh since two thousand and obviously the oil patch has changed so dramatically from that vantage point. We heard about you know energy and energy independence oil exports, imports, last night even in, in the State of the Union. Give us a state of play from an investor's perspective as to what this kind of global shift means for you.
4: Yeah, well, if, if you zoom out and look at the picture and even go back to 2005, back when the Barnett Shale, which is yeah. located in Fort Worth, that really kicked off the shale revolution. But that was primarily natural gas. If, you know, fast forward a few years later in 0809, you had the, the oil production really ramped. But we went from just under five million barrels a day total production in the U.S. to now we're over eleven million barrels a day. Amazing. Four point one of that comes from the Permian or West mm-hmm. Texas, mm-hmm. and so when you think about the changes that have uh, unfolded, it's they're they're astronomical. We did that in call it ten years, and uh, you know it took us we peaked in nineteen seventy three. So it took us you know decades to get to the the inflection point. It's a big deal,
0: what's the play for us at this point? I mean great thing for i think u s consumers great for the United States, politically geopolitically, right, having their own very deep energy source if you source if you will, but what is the longer play when it comes to Oil and natural gas, especially as we see more and more emphasis on climate change and climate impact, and also we see a lot more emphasis on alternative energy.
4: Yeah, so I I think that the genie is out of the bottle. And what I mean by that is that the invisible hand of the marketplace is really going to have a greater influence over prices going forward instead of the, the oligopoly. And what that is attributable to is the oil and gas industry here in the U.S. and the technological advances that they have. Uh, deployed and it's it's not going backwards and we you know as an example in in the delaware basin which is part of the permian the initial production rates for for an individual well have gone from 400 barrels a day four years ago to 800 barrels a day now wow so that productivity has continued to improve now we might not improve at that rate going forward but Suffice it to say that the invisible hand of the marketplace is going to play, and, and we. So, we get what are the you benefit. saying? Because
0: it's inexpensive, that it will continue to dominate in terms of our energy, you know, sources. That's right. The short okay.
4: cycle barrel, which takes, you know, call it six months plus or minus, to bring you know from from beginning mm-hmm. to drill to the production, changes the dynamic because now you're not entirely rely, relying on offshore, you know, long life projects. So we are now playing a more of an on off switch in the marketplace that changes the dynamic globally.
1: So let's, uh, we, Carol and I love talking names. So how yeah. do you play this? You know, what's in your portfolio? What should people be thinking <clears throat> about from your perspective?
4: Well, look, Boone has this, this joke that he it's in his book. He says, when you give cash to a, an E and P company, it's like giving cabbage to a, a rabbit <laughs> and they just chew through it. Well, <laughs> the reason I say that is, is that the, the industry for decades have, has, has had that attitude. And now, they're starting to embrace capital discipline. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, you've got to focus on uh, return of capital and getting shareholders' money back to them. And that's happening. And so I can give you some specific examples. Yeah, give us a, well, a, WP, WPX, WPX Energy. One, right? WPX like. Energy, great example. Um, know the company quite well. They, they reported earlier this week, and in it, what they described was a, a reduction in CapEx by 23%, but their oil production would only go down by 6%. So that is showing you, you know, capital efficiency and the willingness to, to meet investor demands.
0: I mean, we saw that as we saw energy prices plummet, that we saw a lot of firms, they didn't necessarily go out of business. They just got smarter in terms of cutting costs. We really saw that play out. Um, another name that you like, Energy Transfer, ticker is ET.
4: Yeah, Energy Transfer is one of those companies that has a an enviable footprint. It's a midstream company that is present in really all of the, the basins that matter, whether it's the Bakken, they have the Dakota Access Pipeline. Yeah. They've got a, a footprint in the Permian with their gathering and processing long-haul pipe to the, the Houston Ship Channel. They have a big presence at Mount Bellevue, which is the natural gas liquids sort of capital of the, the U.S. So they, they, they touch the molecule at almost every point. And where they sit from a evaluation perspective, we're extremely encouraged by what, what they're doing.
1: Toby Lofton is managing principal over at BP Capital Fund Advisors, based down in Dallas, here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. I should note that both WPX and ET, both up about 13%.
0: So, nothing like getting inside, Jason, on the economy by looking. We look at the credit picture, consumers, businesses. We've been talking about this a lot this year. Someone who knows a lot about that is our next guest. Daryl Esh is Vice President, Commercial Officer for Global Credit at PayPal Credit, based in Charlotte, North Carolina, where it's warmer. I understand, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Welcome to Bloomberg Radio.
5: Thank you for having me, Carol. Tell us,
0: we do really love talking to folks like you because we feel like if we can get an idea about small business lending, consumer lending, consumer credit, it tells us a clearer picture, a better uh, picture about what's going on in the U.S. economy. What are you guys seeing?
5: Sure. So... I think the the big thing in the lending in the lending part of the business in particular is that the demand the demand is always there it came to life in into light in the consumer space here when the government shutdown happened right and we were did all you really
0: see it directly
5: we did and, wow. and 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 well in two ways one is that you that you have the demand that's always there that relative to the 80 percent of households living paycheck to paycheck so People are always in need of a credit facility, but what we did in particular at PayPal that we were proud of is we were able to step in with our partner Synchrony Financial and provide a zero percent cash advance for those furloughed workers. So, uh, and we helped literally thousands of families took advantage of the program where they borrowed up to five hundred dollars at a zero percent interest. So, uh, we, we we definitely felt it firsthand from that regard.
1: So let's talk about payments a little bit, if we can, because again, this is something we've talked mm-hmm. a lot about. Just very simply how people pay for things, how they expect to be able to, to, to pay for them. Obviously, PayPal has been way around the corner, way ahead uh, on this, and your business has, has evolved there. Take us inside the consumer's mind. How do they expect to pay for things? Where is that going
5: in the near term? sure so we we've been at this for 20 years we have more than 250 million active customers around the world at this point and and we've recently completed a study in which 58 percent of consumers said they actually they they won't make a purchase online where paypal is not accepted and so people depend on that on that streamlined sleek experience that they feel good about comfort and security and 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 so that, that's that been there. And what we're seeing more and more of now, though, is customers are looking for that way to finance in a streamlined, elegant way where they don't necessarily need to have a long application. And that's one of the things that we provide is mm. this. Uh, ability to apply and buy in real time. A
0: revolving credit line.
5: It is indeed a revolving credit line.
0: What's different about the revolving credit yours versus yeah. the revolving credit lines that are out there? Because there is a lot of different ways that consumers can tap there, things like that.
5: There are uh, one of the there are two primary differences that we have at PayPal. One is just this mountain of data, this immense. Uh, uh, amount of data that we're able to make credit decisions that others can't who are simply making it just on a credit bureau so we're able to create custom scores at paypal overlay that to a credit experience and frankly say yes to customers and as part of our agenda of democratizing financial services i love
0: that you say that so i'm curious what's the other data points i know you can't give us the whole formula but what are some of the other things daryl that you guys are looking at
5: so and and again based on a couple of decades of of experience and modeling and 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 it's things like it's things like the customer's uh, successful payment behavior so if they've been on PayPal and they're paying successfully with bank accounts with debit cards with balance so so a predictable predictable ability to buy and pay and repeat use so just um, at some of the elements that that we end up looking at
1: we 're speaking with daryl ash he 's the Vice President and Commercial Officer over at PayPal Credit. So what about the merchant side because obviously that gives you yeah. sort of a different mm-hmm. uh, window of sorts into not just consumer behavior but small business and and, and merchant behavior. What are you hearing from them sure
5: so uh, one thing on on related to the consumer product. Where we see that our product ends up helping merchants sell more when they have when they put a credit banner or advertisement on their site, customers know that they have more confidence that they can that they can actually complete the purchase and spend and, and, and the other thing that 's unique about PayPal credit as an attribute is we have a feature that that it 's zero percent no interest if you repay within six months so it 's an always on offer on purchases greater than ninety nine dollars so for a consumer, if you imagine the consumer who 's living paycheck to paycheck. Those, those transactions, more than $99, are the ones that sting the most. And we have this ability where those are always 0% interest as long as you repay within six months. And our, our customers, the merchants love that, of course, because it pulls the consumer upstream into bigger purchases. How
0: do you screen what per- merchants you want and don't want?
5: Uh, how do we screen the merchants we want to do? Yeah. we 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 are an open network, and we we, we really so want, We want all the merchants to come right. play. Yeah. Well, yeah, all the merchants. Well, Bring us I'm all just, the
1: merchants.
0: No, I guess what I meant is, as you said, that when a, a shopper or a consumer sees that they can do something through PayPal, sure. it's automatically. I know I've done it. I know my husband and I have done it. well like, oh, we can pay with PayPal. That's well, right. I trust this merchant. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just curious. You guys don't? It doesn't matter. <laughs> we, we,
5: democratizing financial services is a really just a, one of our one of okay. one of things that's part of our DNA. So we we really we we look to create this platform open for for everyone and create a level playing field for everyone.
1: So you spent uh, a number of years, about 15 years, with Bank of America. I did. Obviously, a pretty different experience, I would imagine. But you worked across, you know, the debit card business, the consumer credit card right. business as well. How are we approaching – we've done some work on this uh, in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. How do we think about credit cards these days? How do we think about them versus (laughs) mobile payments? Where are we in that cycle? And it feels like the answer is different maybe in the U.S. than it is in, say, China or, or other parts of Europe.
5: Sure. So uh, banks play a a cornerstone uh, uh, part in their their communities, and and PayPal partners with the banks to make it easier to link your bank accounts and your PayPal accounts. So banks are always going to be important to society. What we can do at PayPal, though, on top of that, to differentiate a little bit, the fact that we have this unique relationship with both the consumer and the merchant, this closed loop network. Again, it allows us in some cases to provide credit where a traditional bank might not be able to. So for example, our PayPal credit account that the consumers use, and we just announced we just, since the, uh, since the inception of that program in 2008, we've done now more than $50 billion in sales on that program. One third of our consumers who use this product, they, they only have this as a credit vehicle in their PayPal wallet. So, so they, this is their access to credit online.
0: So Daryl, in terms of the activity that you're seeing both on the merchant side and then also on the consumer side, how would you describe kind of the economic environment? How would you describe kind of the health of the consumer in terms of managing their debt loads?
5: Yeah, uh, so far, so far, we're still in a good place in the cycle. So this has been a great credit cycle, great growth cycle for both business and, and consumer. No over
0: leveraging that you're seeing.
5: Uh, things are looking good, good at this stage.
1: And geographically, pretty consistent. I mean, you know, you live down south; we're here right. uh, up north. And obviously, when we saw the government shutdown, which you mentioned earlier, yeah. you know, that certainly hit disproportionately different uh, pockets of the nation. It feels like, but pretty consistent.
5: Pretty consistent. We're yeah. still in a, in a good place. And it is one of the things, though, that that our years of experience and those fifty billion dollars worth of sales that we've financed builds the experience that we feel confident that. We're going to be here for our sellers and our consumers during this during this cycle and the next one, because they are called cycles, so we, we do yeah. know that there will inevitably <laughs> be a downturn.
0: Yeah. Uh, one last question. 20 seconds. You talk about, because, of course, you guys are working globally, where are you seeing the most growth in terms of consumers
5: uh, and well, or merchants? Yeah, so… The U.S. is, is still, still obviously a, a very, very strong market for us. Uh, but but the company's growing great across Europe and Asia Pacific as well.
0: All right. Great to check in with you. Thank you. Have a good trip home. Daryl Ash. he's vice president, commercial officer at PayPal Credit.
5: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. To
2: Foxconn and to all of the amazing Wisconsin workers with us today and all over this thing, congratulations on truly one of the Eighth wonder I, I think we can say This is the eighth wonder Of the world This is the eighth wonder Of the world
1: And that was President Trump uh, Speaking in Wisconsin About a year ago year and a half ago right. I believe sure, yeah uh, And uh, less than, So less than like yeah. eight, eight, nine months ago yeah. uh, Speaking in Wisconsin That is the focus of a truly must-read story. It's the U.S. cover story this week in Bloomberg Business Week. Austin Carr is the writer. And the headline, Inside Wisconsin's Disastrous $4.5 Billion Deal with Foxconn. It's available on – not available in news fans yet, available online and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Austin right. with us here in our Bloomberg One of our most-read
0: stories, by the way, on the Bloomberg as we speak.
1: And not surprisingly, it's very richly reported and says a lot about this presidency, the economy. Uh, so, Austin – Remind us who Fox, what Foxconn is, and what the promise was here.
6: Sure thing. Uh, Yeah, Foxconn is one of the world's or the world's largest uh, electronics contract manufacturer. It makes all the parts for your iPhone, Nintendos, Amazon Echoes, basically any electronics device uh, that you own. It's also synonymous with overseas manufacturing. Uh, It's a Taiwanese company, but about 80 to 90 percent of its operations are in mainland China. Um, This whole deal got started because President Trump wants to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., and what better bellwether for that than Foxconn, that oversees Taiwanese manufacturers synonymous with Chinese manufacturing, to come over to Wisconsin to build here?
0: And if you're thinking, it, you know, and if you're a Foxconn and you're worried a little bit about a U.S.-China trade war, right, trying to make nice with a new administration, President Trump and his team, not a bad idea. So that's what they did. They made nice. They came and essentially set up shop in Wisconsin, promised thousands of jobs. Walk us through that.
6: Yeah, so the big deal that was struck uh, was about $4.5 billion in subsidies in exchange for Fox Taunton to create about 13,000 jobs as well as invest $10 billion. Manufacturing <laughs>
0: jobs, right? High-paying? Most, most of them well would paid. be manufacturing yeah.
6: jobs. Um, and the deal from the beginning, as we write in the story, was, it was pretty nakedly political. I mean, uh, if you think about it, it was struck originally in Ryan's Priebus, who was then chief of staff uh, for Donald Trump. And he was a Wisconsinite, the Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan, another Wisconsinite. Uh, President Trump had recently visited Wisconsin and actually recommended Wisconsin, which, let's remind ourselves, also helped him win the uh, presidential election. Um, So there was a lot of reasons for the company to be interested in the state, Uh, but when they started moving here, almost immediately after the deal deal was signed in November 2017, it started drastically changing over the course of uh, the following year. And so tell us how this
1: fits into the broader sort of trade war, trade tensions between the Chinese and U.S., and also how it may tell us something about the Chinese economy and demand for electronics.
6: Well, as you can imagine, this uh, Taiwanese company uh, has been caught up. Uh, We we talked to analysts throughout the story who basically said that they're caught in the middle between these barbs being thrown back and forth from President Trump as well as China. Uh, So basically, it needs to diversify its revenue stream. A lot of it comes from their manufacturing, not just from China, but also from Apple. So as uh, global demand is softening for iPhones, they need to not just find new revenue streams, but also insulate themselves from some of those pressures going on in the tariffs uh, potential tariffs being slapped on their goods imported here and lowering their margins. Uh, so that was definitely one of the bigger reasons for them to also be interested in looking abroad. They've also talked more recently about India or different countries as well that they could manufacture in. I
0: mean, what's wild about this story is what was kind of presented to the public about what the mission was, what Foxconn was going to do. And then there's the reality of exactly what happened. We haven't seen thousands and thousands of good-paying factory jobs being created so far. And I'm uh, and, and to be fair, it was supposed to be a multi-year kind of rollout but the early going doesn't bode well they're <laughs> not off project. to a good start to yeah. be
6: clear they're not supposed to uh, hit their 13,000 jobs target until about 2022 at the earliest, but their first year target was about, the high was about 1,040 jobs, and they missed that target by about 82%. So they're not off to a good start. That, that's definitely clear. The the larger thing, though, is that uh, our reporting, based on dozens and dozens of sources, indicates that the conditions inside the factories haven't really lived up to the promises that uh, the president has made. These were supposed to be good-paying jobs, but a lot of people say that they were actually hourly temp workers that were making about 14 an hour. That was not what you'd call a family-supporting wage, which is what the contract said. Um, they also talked about how they had these advanced facilities, but a lot of the people said that the equipment was pretty dated. Uh, these were supposed to be products that were, quote, made in the USA. That's one of the big things President Trump said at the groundbreaking ceremony, where he talked about it being the eighth wonder of the world. It turns out a lot of the TV parts that they're making in Wisconsin are actually just assembled there. Most of the components are. Imported from Mexico and indeed many of the TV displays still say made in Mexico well and
1: even the products that are being made some of the few that are being made aren't the most advanced products which was part of the uh, original deal so. It sounds like this is an ongoing story in a lot of ways. Wisconsin feels like it has a little bit of an egg on its face for all these incentives uh, that they put forth. And as you point out, a lot of the politicians, aside from the president, have sort of moved on. You know, Governor Scott Walker no longer in office. Reince Priebus, who you mentioned, no longer working for the president. Paul Paul Ryan Ryan, uh, has retired uh, from the House of Representatives. So much in this story. Really commend it to everyone out there. So much good color. Richly reported, as I said, some great documents that you uh, came across that show all the back and forth. Austin Carr, uh, tech reporter for Bloomberg, author of the cover story uh, this week in Bloomberg Business Week, goes through the tale of Foxconn, the tale of Trump and Wisconsin, what was promised and what may never be.
0: You should all read it. Definitely check it out on newsstands uh, to Bloomberg.com. And uh, also check out Austin's Twitter. This is Bloomberg.
7: I'm driving in my car I turn on
1: the radio How yeah,
4: about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no Who's gonna drive you home?
7: Honey, please, I'll do the driving
4: Drive home
7: Excuse me, I wanna drive Just drive, baby Just drive, baby. It's the question that drive. us
1: is The Drive to the Close. That punky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: We've just got about 12 minutes left, 11 minutes left in today's trading session. It is time for The Drive to the Close. Michael Sheldon is with us once again, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group, joining us from Westport, Connecticut. So, Michael, nice to have you here um, and talking with you. You believe we are likely in the late stages of the current economic expansion, but that doesn't mean the end is just around the corner, according to you. Why not? Why does each leg of this expansion seem to be longer than history would suggest?
7: Well, as you pointed out, we're definitely in uh, one of the longest expansions. If we get past the middle of this summer, we'll actually have experienced the longest economic expansion in the post-World War II period. Right. And there, there are a few reasons for that. Um, if you look at some of the cycles in the past. 30 years or so, cycles, economic cycles seem to be getting longer than they were many years ago. And we can get into a whole discussion about that. But I think technology and uh, inventories are making a difference. We're more service oriented versus more business and manufacturing oriented. So that's definitely the case. But I think in terms of um, We're in the latter stages. Uh, You can look at that from a number of perspectives. Wages are starting to rise. Unemployment is at fairly low levels. So we are in the latter stages. But that doesn't mean that the end of the cycle is just around the corner.
1: And so, Michael, when you think about the catalyst for this market, I, I feel like we went into 2019 saying it's, you know, sort of economy broadly defined, trade and the Fed. Would you agree that the Fed at this point is kind of off the table in terms of something that investors are really worried about or worried about on a a day-to-day basis?
7: Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, As you were saying, our biggest concerns coming into the year were the Fed and the rising trade tariff talks with China. So at the latest Fed meeting last month, uh, the Federal Reserve really did a a 360 or 180, excuse me, and they changed course. Uh, It was really quite dramatic. Back in October, if you remember last year, Powell talked about the fact that we were far away from the neutral rate, which is the rate uh, the economy that the Fed is not either stimulating or or causing economic growth to slow. Uh, now they're saying that they're likely to move to the sidelines because of uh, volatility in financial markets and um, uh, economic growth overseas, which is the first time they've actually really talked about global events overseas. So the Fed moving to the sidelines is a real positive. It means that the Fed is unlikely to rock the boat or cause the economy to slow dramatically. At least, you know, they're they're basically out of the picture. They may come back in the second half of the year, but we just don't know. And then lastly, on trade and tariffs, that's really the, the, the gorilla in the room right now. And we're waiting to see, we're watching with bated breath to see if China and the United States can come to some agreement to promote global growth.
0: So... Politics. Let's talk about that, right? Now we're counting down to the next presidential election. We got a State of the Union, uh, and so we know what's on President Trump's mind. How does what comes out of Washington kind of play into your perspective on the financial markets?
7: Well, over time, politics and Politics can have a big impact on the markets. Um, look at taxes, for example, when President Trump pushed forth lower taxes for corporations. That provided a bit of a stimulus and tailwind for the markets uh, in 2018. Uh, government policy can also have an effect on many different parts of the market. For example, there is talk that that, that Democrats and Republican, Republicans may work together to reduce Pharmaceutical prices; Uh, they can have an impact on regulation in the banking industry. Uh, So there's there's definitely uh, policies in Washington can can definitely have an impact. But I think as you're looking ahead, we're looking ahead to this year. I think the key thing for investors is to, to not take their focus off the ball in that, and that is that over time, stock prices tend to follow the direction of corporate profits and we had a bit of, you could call it a sugar high in 2018, with profit growth estimated to be about 20%. So that's looking backwards. For 2019, profit growth is supposed to be around 5% this year possibly negative in the first quarter, before we rebound to about 11% next year. So I think that's the most important thing for investors to keep an eye on. And obviously, the Fed and China are also stories as well.
0: Does that mean, Michael, based on what you said, of course, corporate profits and what it means for stock prices, that we might see stocks at this point kind of marking time a little bit, and then you see another leg up potentially next year because we'll see earnings growth? And let's remember comparisons. Comparisons right now are tough versus a year ago. Next year, it sounds like comparisons will be easier.
7: Well, that's a good point. I think investors have to have somewhat more moderate expectations as we head through 2019. The big jump in corporate profits because of the tax cuts in 2017 are now behind us. Um, But as long as the economy stays out of recession, which at this point is our our base case, the economy should continue to grow. And if we see low to mid single digit corporate profits along with maybe a 2% dividend, um, you know that's not the worst of all worlds. So we have had January, after, after a rough fourth quarter, January was up about 8%. So that's, that was a pretty good uh, snapback from the decline we saw at the end of last year. Right now, the S&P 500 is trading at about 16 times forward estimates. So until we get a little more clarity, we may sort of mark time. Uh, but again, the big picture is as long as we stay out of recession for this year, we think we're still on, on moderately positive footing uh, for equity markets.
1: So with moderately positive footing, Michael, what types of stocks do you, do you look at here? Because it doesn't seem like it's a market where you want to make a lot of risky trades.
7: Yeah, I think increasingly you want to look at the, the sectors of the market that are likely to perform better, as well as the individual companies. So, in terms of sectors, uh, at RDM Financial, this year we favor technology. We think areas like 5G and artificial intelligence and robotics and big data; those are those are attractive areas that are likely to provide uh, attractive growth in client portfolios over the next few years. Uh, the technology sector also. Uh, has rising dividends, and it's one of the few sectors. I think it's actually the only sector that has an, has more cash in their balance sheets than debt. Uh, the other sectors we like are healthcare, sort of a GARP sector, which is growth at a reasonable price, and you also have positive demographic trends um, helping uh, spur profits and, and sales in that area. And then we like financials, and this is sort of a contrarian play. They really haven't done too well, even though. Even though sales and profits and dividends are rising, uh, they actually trade at the most attractive valuation or the lowest PE in the entire market of, at about 11 times. So, with all the return of capital, we think uh, financial should start to do better. The other thing is, in terms of individual stocks, since we are probably in the latter stages, you want, as investors, you want to focus on larger blue chip companies that are industry leaders, have strong balance sheets. Have positive free cash flow and in many cases rise, raise their dividend on a consistent basis.
1: Michael Sheldon is Executive Director and Chief Investment Officer out at RDM Financial Group in Westport, Connecticut. That's where he joins us on the phone. Uh, Michael, thank you so much as always. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.